Hello, everybody. This is Effort Kleinance coming to you live on PageCast, which is a podcast brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. In this episode, we are focusing on David Katz's recent book, General Jan Smuts and His First World War in Africa, which was published by Delta Books in August 2022. David obtained his doctorate from the Faculty of Military Science of Stellenbosch University in 2021 and is currently a research fellow in the Department of Military History. He has also lectured at the Army and Defence Colleges of the South African National Defence Force. His first book, South Africans versus Rommel, The Untold Story of the Desert War in World War II, was also published by Delta Books in 2019. David, welcome to this podcast. I look forward to interacting with you over the next half an hour or so. Thank you so much, Everett, for such a nice welcome. The first question I have for you is that everybody will agree that Smuts is quite a divisive topic in the South African history and historiography. And what would you say his current standing is in South Africa and internationally today? Well, this is such an interesting question because you use the word divisive, and uh, he's proved to be divisive across the board. I mean, even in academia, I would say to you that he's pretty divisive at the end of the day. Um, he ra- he raises a-, a lot of emotions amongst academics, and I've been subject to that on a number of occasions when trying to deliver papers or anything like that. You get people that get pretty emotional about Jan Smuts, especially where you don't expect it. So, no, certainly, I mean, let's talk outside of academia. He still to this day remains very, very divisive amongst the, the Afrikaners. There are certain sectors of, of, of the Afrikaners who identify with Afrikaner nationalism, who are perhaps most probably nostalgic about Afrikaner nationalism, who just don't accept Jan Smuts as being an Afrikaner. They see him as a farrier or a traitor. They see him as being an internationalist rather than looking after the concerns of the Afrikaner. And they feel pretty bitter to this day. And I've, I've, I've experienced that in addressing Afrikaners at the Fur Trekker Monument, where they were very courteous to me. But they, they had a lot of reservations about Jan Smuts. There are sectors of the English community here who are royalists. They like the Queen, and they certainly like Jan Smuts. Uh, my mother was one of them. So that's the type of divisiveness that he brings. You wouldn't expect it to be decades after his death. But he still evokes a lot of emotion. So I've brought this book into a minefield, basically. It's, it's a minefield. And it's inspired a lot of people to rethink Jan Smuts as a general. On the other hand, I suppose it's, it's made quite a few people angry. It's elicited responses from all sectors of the community. Yeah, no, definitely. I can agree with you there. Following up on that, why a biography on Smuts and why now? What led you to write this book on Smuts? Well, certainly identified a gap in, um, there've been certain biographies on Smuts, I think 30 to 40 at the last count, but the last biographies only came through decades ago. And uh, the latest biographies by Richard Stein weren't really academic works. They were journalistic works that brought the subject back onto the table, but really didn't add anything into uh, extra into the body of knowledge. That was the one aspect where I thought it's time now to re-examine Smuts in the cold light of day, uh, 50 years or so after his tenure thought it was time and certainly to examine the military smuts but why why the military smuts is most probably the question that you're asking me why examine that south africans versus rommel highlighted certain facts to me when i wrote the book about a south african way of war and how central smuts was to that south african way of war and you can almost see my young smuts book as a prequel to south africans versus rommel where I use smuts as a lens to go and examine the south african way of war because he was founder and the father uh, really, of the South African way of war, together with Louis Boerter. 
So that's how fundamental it was to him. Yeah, in a quest for greater knowledge about what the South African military is all about and its doctrine, I decided I'm going to re-examine Jan Smuts as a general. No, thanks for that, Dave. And, and many of the listeners won't know, but that David actually enrolled for a, his doctorate on this very same topic at Stellenbosch uh, University in 2015, I think. Six years worth of work, which culminated in this book. So just some further context with that. Dave, according to your research over this period, what would you say was the essence of SMUT, according to the research? Well, an important question, I think Bill Nassim brought that to the fore, where he challenged a future biographers to turn around and reveal what was the, the essence of Smuts. And when we have a look at him as the military man, as a politician and the political man, his essence pretty much was expansionist. He believed in pushing the borders of South Africa northwards. First of all, he believed in unified South Africa under one banner just happened to be the Commonwealth banner at the end. But he believed in expanding South Africa's borders northwards, building the empire from Cape to Cairo, which was pretty much what Rhodes believed in uh, yeah. and other British imperialists believed in. But that was central to the being of Smuts. So when we examine his motivation as, and his objectives for entering the First World War, for coming in, trying to conquer German East Africa, it all goes back to his expansionist policy. So I would say to you, I mean, we boil it down, the military Smuts, what was his essence? I would say he was an unabridged expansionist, and uh, he sought a greater South Africa with its borders far north of what we have today. No, absolutely. I, I will agree with you on that one. The next question following on on that would be, what makes your biography of Smuts different from the current spate of offerings available to us as readers today? Well, when you say the current spate of offerings, let's look over the last 20 years, because those are, those are this, those sort of significant uh, can we call it contemporary type of histories that have come out about smuts? I found, I did an extensive uh, literature review, even in the book, because I found that I had to unravel a lot of what had been written about smuts in the last 20 years, which was unfortunate. But there seemed to be a bias against him in certain historian circles that needed to be revisited and re-examined using primary documentation to lead the way. There was that aspect that I had to tackle. There was a large gap in the military smuts. A lot of people considered Smuts at best to be a gifted amateur and at worst to be actually not a good general at all who made a lot of mistakes in German East Africa and didn't play a significant role in German Southwest Africa. I found the opposite, that he played quite a significant role in German Southwest Africa and that his generalship in German East Africa, although he didn't achieve the objectives that maybe the British were looking for, which was the elimination of the Germans in East Africa, he certainly achieved his own objectives, which was territorial acquisition and territorial expansion. Have a look at his objective in terms of him wanting a greater South Africa. It starts to become more understandable. So I felt that I had to redress and unravel some of the history that had been offered over the last 20 years. And lastly, also the history offered by Richard Stein uh, is more of a journalistic work. It's a work that referred to the secondary sources rather than going back to the primary sources. So it didn't really, it put the subject back onto the table, but it certainly didn't bring anything new about Smuts on the table. So I felt it was time now that we, that we need to bring something new about Smuts on the table. Oh, thank you for that. I think that's a very good explanation there. Now, if you want to start a bar fight, I think nowadays, well, probably anywhere in the, in the north of the country, you could ask the question, was Smuts a good general? And I think you'll find very different opinions amongst a whole different range of people. So according to you, was he, in fact, a competent general? 
I must say one thing, Everett, I don't even know if it would be a cause of a bar fight because uh, I haven't found, I mean, I haven't found too many people currently who believe that Smuts was a good general. So uh, intense has the, can one even call it propaganda uh, against him over the last 50 years been that it's almost come across as common knowledge that Smuts was not a good general and that uh, he reached his level of incompetence in German East Africa. The first inkling that I saw that there was some type of a reversal of this opinion was by a British historian a couple of years back where he took a look at, at Smuts and said, look, maybe the pendulum has swung too far and maybe we need to relook at this. And he did so without really relooking at it. So, yeah, I'll say to you, no reason for a bar fight, perhaps. I mean, uh, you walk into the bar and <laughs> it's just going to be, I'm going to be up against a, a hell of a lot of adverse opinion uh, against him. So, in my opinion, yes, look, I, I set out on this on this mission. Uh, I didn't really have preconceived ideas as to, as to mm. what I would find. But certainly the evidence that I uncovered uh, leads me to believe that he was certainly a reasonably competent general, certainly compared to those that went before him in German East Africa, and that he was certainly more competent than had been made out by past generations of historians. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if people actually read your book, then maybe there could be a bar fight. Maybe. <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> look, I'm happy for a bar fight. There's nothing worse than being ignored, and I wouldn't want to be ignored. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to entertain all, all different types of opinions, uh, I've put across a certain opinion based on what I believe is sound documentary evidence. Perhaps my opinion is is very strong. I think necessarily so, because as I said to you, I've had to unravel yeah. decades worth of historical matter that has gone, I think, too far in the, in the opposite direction. So, yeah. yeah, I'm happy to entertain all comers who may have a different opinion to mine. The, the Union of South Africa is formed in 1910, and in 1912, the Union Defence Force, which is the forerunner, of course, of the South African National Defence Force today, is established, and Smuts plays quite a pivotal role in the formation of this Defence Force. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how Jan Smuts actually shaped the Defence Force, especially during these formative years up to the, you know, the start of the, the First World War? Well, certainly very, very interesting. Smuts was one of the founding members of the Union Defence Force. And having said that, I mean, obviously he had a lot of influence on his formation and, and what happened to it thereafter. Between him and Louis Boerter, they were determined to have a unified South African force, which is understandable in the new Union of South Africa. And they did so with an eye to making sure that this Union Defence Force would be representative of the Afrikaner and the English uh, political aspirations in the country. And they went so far as to make a to make sure that there was a 50-50% uh, representation, especially in the leadership side, uh, in the leadership component, where 50% you, you could split it right down, it's close to that, split it right down the middle, 50% Afrikaner, 50% English South Africans. That's what they went to. And then, of course, you must question the competency of some of these people that were elected based on language group rather than on competency. So... Mm. Yeah, it, there was a lot of expediency to start out with the new Union Defence Force to cater for the different political aspirations and also to dampen down the ill feeling between Englishmen and Afrikaner uh, from the uh, South African war. It was a mere uh, 11 or 12 years previous to that. So the wounds had not had not healed. They were, uh, Louis Berta and Smuts were very cognizant of the fact that the wounds had not healed. And they saw the Union Defence Force as a nation-building uh, exercise. And they were determined, the two of them, 
to build a modern, what they called a modern defense force. And part of being a modern defense force was that they were going to discard some of the things from the old Republican Boer armies. Uh, so they were going to wear uniforms, unlike the uh, Republican armies. They were going to have discipline. They were going to have square bashing. They were going to have doctrine. They were going to have manuals. And they were going to have English instructors come over from England and instruct this new Union Defence Force in the, in, in, the, in the British ways of war, in the British doctrine. So the Union Defence Force set out at a very early stage to mimic the, the British model of what a modern defence force was going to look like. Taking on what you said, Smuts intended for the UDF to follow a British doctrine, but a trick of fate in the form of the 1914 strikes and the Afrikaner Rebellion changed the trajectory of how South Africa would fight in the future. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Yes, certainly. I think this is a new discovery in the book. It certainly took some of the reviewers by surprise, where they didn't realize that the Union Defence Force had been on a certain trajectory, and the 1914 strikes and the Afrikaner Rebellion changed that trajectory, which is very, very interesting. So what happened is that the Union Defence Force was in a fledgling state during the 1914 strikes, and the new conscripts were unable to be deployed because they hadn't been fully trained. And if you look at those new concepts, they were made up mainly of uh, English leadership, uh, trained in the British way, uh, and, and made up of most probably 50% Afrikaners and 50% and Englishmen. And these are the ones that would have been deployed had these strikes happened a little bit later. But Smuts then had to rely on calling up the old Afrikaner Republican troops, the Boer Republican troops, to come and suppress the riots. And what he had done is that these Boer Republican commandos had been relegated to what they called the rifle associations, the B reservists. And uh, he had put them there, was probably hoping never to use them again. These were all veterans of the Boer War, very much totally schooled in the Boer way of war and never having been uh, had any instruction at all under the new Union Defence Force system with the British instructors. So by a trick of fate, these people were deployed uh, that started to have an influence on where the Union Defence Force was going. Certainly when we have a look at the Afrikaner Rebellion, again, the loyalists to Louis Boerte and Smuts were called up to fight against the Afrikaner rebels, and these were made up of, of the loyalist uh, Republican commandos, and once again, the Union Defence Force were, had to rely on the old Republican ways, the old Republican way of war, and the old Republican doctrine to suppress this internal unrest. And we see that again in phase two of the German Southwest African campaign, where the majority of the fighting was now done by Boer Republic, old veterans of the Boer Republican forces, led by old Boer commanders. And uh, that certainly changed the trajectory of what the Union Defence Force was all about in the First World War. No, absolutely. I, I think this is a very interesting point that you make. And, and I think, you know, this comes to the fore as one keeps investigating South African military history during this period is how important these loyal, the loyalists or the loyal Afrikaners almost were to Smuts and Boerta and their, their, their following and how they impacted the deployment of the Defence Force. So following on on this, I would I think we need to, to, to take the discussion a bit in a different way. This is something that you and I have talked about on a number of occasions, but is there a distinct South African way of war? And if so, what is it in a nutshell, and where would you say it was refined? I always get nervous when people to make me define things in a nutshell. It's not that simple. It's quite a complex. <laughs> it's a it's a complex answer to a complex question. But okay, let's try and define some of the items that make up what we call a South African way of war. And let's try and identify some of them that make makes it distinct 
to the British way of war, let's say, and the German way of war. Okay, first of all, the Boers were maneuverists. So they liked to maneuver uh, on the battlefield instead of fighting in static positions, instead of resorting to direct assaults on static positions. They liked to conserve manpower. They didn't want to expend uh, the lives of the commanders unnecessarily seeking out period victories or even decisive victories. They would rather have left the battlefield and live to fight a, to, to fight another day. So that was their type of warfare. They were maneuverist. Uh, they certainly looked to dislocate their enemy rather than destroy their enemy. And I think this is something that we can trace. It's almost like a golden thread that runs through the Union Defense Force of World War I, Union Defense Force of the Second World War. We see that golden thread of the Absolutely. South Africans using either mounted infantry or motorized infantry, wanting to maneuver rather than engaging in static warfare, rather than engaging in direct attacks. Uh, they would rather envelop, use a double envelopment or a single envelopment of their opponent, try and dislocate them out of their positions and move them on. They didn't really seek at the end of the, uh, end of the day to eliminate the enemy through costly assaults, unlike the Germans who were also maneuverers, but the Germans maneuvered to fight. To have that end result was a Kesselslacht, where they could go in and uh, and eliminate the enemy in an in, in expensive assault. That was the German way of war. It certainly wasn't the South African way of war. And I would say to you that golden thread can be traced to the South African defense force on the border walls. I believe, although by then we had sort of institutional amnesia and we'd forgotten where we had gained our way of war, but certainly we were sensitive to casualties. Certainly we spoke a lot about maneuvering. We were maneuverists. Uh, we didn't quite know where we were going with it. We looked to the Israelis. We looked to the Germans. We looked everywhere except back to uh, our roots, which was a Boer Republican route. Even picked it up in the South African National Defense Force, our current day defense force, which certainly in its doctrine, its written doctrine, it tries to be maneuverist. It as uh, aspires to be maneuverist, and it harks back to exactly what I'm talking about, uh, the old Boer Republican way of maneuver. Uh, so very, very interesting in a nutshell. A long nutshell. That's basically uh, <laughs> <laughs> defining what the South African way of war is all about. I mean, just just on that, in your book, it, it really becomes quite clear, and is that by the second or the latter half of the campaign in German Southwest Africa, modern-day Namibia, we really see that the South African way of war actually starts coming together, especially at the Battle of Utavifontein, which is so important. And could you maybe just Tell us a little bit more about that, what we see at Utavi Fontaine and how we relate it back to the South African way of war. Well, I, certainly what happened in German Southwest Africa was that it was initially during phase one. Uh, it landed up to be two phases, by the way, split down the middle by, by the Afrikaner Rebellion. The Afrikaner Rebellion truncated the South African invasion of German Southwest Africa. The South Africans had to deal quickly uh, with the rebellion before they could carry on. So there was a distinct phase one and phase two plan was uh, engineered by, by Jan Smuts, and he looked to have a small force that would maneuver against the Germans and maneuver them out of their positions, eventually overcome them by dislocating them and destroying their will to fight. That was the initial plan. After the Afrikaner Rebellion, there was a change of plan, uh, and the South Africans uh, decided that they're going to increase their numbers fourfold, fivefold over the original amounts that they were going to use. And it became a very, very cumbersome operation. You had your Afrikaner mounted or Boer mounted infantry led by Afrikaners of the old Republican Guard. 
and you had your English regular infantry units led by Englishmen. I won't say they weren't English units. Uh, they were the, the South African infantry units, mostly led by English South Africans. And uh, you had the distinction between the two. It was a very cumbersome operation due to a lot of attrition, slow movement, very cumbersome. They managed to maneuver the Germans out of their positions. And finally, what happened at the Battle of Otavifontaine is we start seeing what Jan Smuts intended. A lot of the units now were, were, were sent back to South Africa. A lot of the units were disbanded. And uh, Louis Berta found himself leading a, a very much smaller, lean, mean Union Defense Force combined mounted infantry and dismounted infantry force only uh, twice as large as the Germans at a place, a little place called Otavifontaine, which was really the last stand of the Germans in, in German Southwest Africa. And there... He quite brilliantly, by using a double envelopment, he quite brilliantly uh, outmaneuvered the Germans. Two wings of this envelopment went off totally independently. The two generals leading them went off totally independently and met many kilometers uh, to the north of the envelopment, met hands, encircled the Germans and forced the Germans to uh, to surrender by totally dislocating them and, and uh, reducing their morale, which is exactly what the South African way, it epitomizes what the South African way of war is all about. High maneuver, combined arms, this double envelopment that we saw magnificently put out, a lot of independent action by generals on the two arms making decisions without having to refer back to Louis Boerte, make decisions on the spot. And uh, really, so Otavi Fontaine marks uh, the beginning of what I would call the first example, the new Union Defense Force African way of war. Yes. Absolutely. I concur. Let's move uh, to the next campaign in Africa and German East Africa, because this is, of course, where Smuts also made quite a big name for himself during the war. And in your book, you speak uh, of a conflict of doctrine that existed between the South Africans and the British. So can you maybe just elaborate a bit on what the relationship was between Smuts and those British officers that he commanded in German East Africa? You're using the past tense. You're saying uh, uh, you're saying was. I believe there's still a conflict of doctrine, <laughs> especially when it comes to the historians. They still, to this day, to this day, contemporary historians don't really understand Jan Smuts and his way of war and the South African way of war. It's not fully understood, and hopefully, my book can highlight this and bring the argument to the table, uh, so that we can examine it in more detail. So what, so what was the difference? Well, basically, the, the British believed in eliminating letter from Forbeck. What they wanted to do was use the South African forces, the numerical advantage of the South African forces, to pin von letter Forbeck down and surround him and eliminate him in one decisive blow. That's what they were looking for. I don't know if they could ever have achieved that because von letter Forbeck was way far too wily to allow himself to be surrounded, eliminated in, in, in one blow, as he proved against Jan Smuts and uh, his campaign. What did Jan Smuts want to achieve, as opposed to what the British generals wanted to achieve? So we need to look at his thinking, his doctrine, uh, at, at the three different levels of war. So at the strategic level, he, he differed with the British, because at the strategic level, he was looking to acquire as much German East African territory as possible that he could in as short a space of time because he had no inkling of when the war was going to end. And in fact, a lot of people in 1916 believed that the war would end soon. That was the general feeling. It always went mm -hmm. on longer than everybody thought about, but Jan Smuts, we've got to put himself, we've got to put ourselves in his shoes at that time. So he had no idea when the war was going to end. He had a feeling that it was going to end soon. And therefore, before it ended, 
He wanted to acquire as much German territory as possible. Why? So that he could use it. If you look at, going back to what I said in the beginning, if you look at his overall, his essence, his overall objective was the expansionist, greater South Africa, and expanding the, the borders of uh, South Africa northward. So he was looking to acquire German territory to swap with the Portuguese territory of Mozambique, uh, Delagoa Bay. That's what he wanted to affect because he had his eyes on Delagoa Bay for many, many years. So that was his strategy. Whereas the British were looking to eliminate a letter from Forbeck, he was looking to conquer territory. So there, straight away, you've got a conflict of objective, a conflict of strategy and a conflict of doctrine right at the outset, right at the outset. At the operational level, this business that, that Jan Smuts have of maneuvering his enemy out of positions, uh, living to fight another day, watching his casualties, that was an enigma and an anathema to the British who were looking for that decisive battle. They didn't understand this maneuverous type of warfare. They didn't understand enveloping and removing the enemy of his chosen position and dislocating him and unhinging him and fighting him at the psychological level. That's not where they were at. So there was a conflict of doctrine at that level. And uh, certainly at the tactical level, Jan Smuts used his mounted infantry very much like it was used in the uh, Boer War was something that the British were not used to. They certainly didn't use their mounted infantry uh, similar to that, and they didn't really get a grip and understand what, what Smuts was all about and what he was trying to achieve. The results in Germany, East Africa were ambiguous, to say the least. Some see uh, later Vorbeck as the victor, who based at Smuts. What is your view on this? Well, again, I think we need to take this at different levels of war. Hmm. And... I would say to you without a doubt that I do believe that Smuts achieved his strategic aim of ridding German East Africa of the German presence to the extent that he had conquered 90, but when he left in 1916, he had conquered 90% of the territory. And he did so knowingly that he didn't know when the war was going to end. So I believe at the strategic level, he achieved the aim that he set out to start with. Certainly, I don't know if it's what the British wanted. In fact, I do know it's not what the British wanted. They were looking to eliminate Leto Fulbeck at that stage and were reasonably disappointed that that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, at the operational level, Smuts started off very, very well. South African way of war liberated large extents of German-British-held territory. That uh, it was the only German-British-held territory of the war, as far as I know. It didn't sit well with the British that the Germans were on British territory. So he managed to get in, in a lightning campaign at Kilimanjaro. He managed, where the British had failed on numerous occasions prior to that, he managed to dislodge the Germans and nearly, by the way, eliminated them in that campaign, the Kilimanjaro campaign. Nearly eliminated them and achieved his aim. But some issues that happened on his right wing, he was unable to do so. But he certainly dislodged them from British territory and achieved that aim. So at the operational level, we see a lot of competence coming from, from Jan Smuts and a lot of the South African way of war emerging, uh, the maneuverist approach to it. Funnily enough, you've got two maneuverists fighting against each other because Leto von Forbeck was just as wily as a maneuverist as Jan Smuts. You're looking at finding von Leto Forbeck like a needle in a haystack in this vast expanse of territory yeah. with, with Smuts trying to chase him down. Uh, very, very interesting. And um, he was a wily opponent at the tactical level. Leto, certainly the South Africans struggled often at the tactical level of combat, where the, where the Germans were proved their superiority on a, on a number of occasions. The one thing that, that of course, let Jan Smuts down tremendously was the enormous amount of losses that he suffered to disease and yeah. poor medical treatment and uh, poor logistics, uh, mm. something that he has to answer for at the end. So, uh, David, 
did, did would you say that Smuts achieved his ultimate aim, his core objectives that he had when he entered the war? I would say certainly not. I don't believe so because he set out. Okay, so what did he hope to achieve? He 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 set out hoping hoping to annex German Southwest Africa, so it would become part of South Africa. He never managed to do that because it became a mandate. So uh, although they had control of Southwest Africa, they were unable to incorporate it. Let's call it a minor failure. He managed to gain the territory, but not in the way that he wanted to. German East Africa. He hoped to gain the territory and swap it out with the Portuguese for uh, Delagoa Bay. Portuguese held fast. That never happened. So he never achieved his aim there. You know, by the time that he reached the peace conference in 1919, this whole idea of acquiring territory did not sit well with the Americans who became very, very dominant in the world after World War I. And this whole empire building type idea didn't sit well with the Americans. So he was a man out of time, basically, by the time it got to uh, the peace conference. So he didn't achieve his overall aims of territorial acquisition, which was the very aim, I believe, of him entering the, the, the First World War, besides the loyalty to Britain and all that. He wanted to acquire this territory. Did he achieve elevating South Africa's status as and gain international recognition for South Africa and himself in the world and allowing South Africa to punch way above its uh, weight category? I believe, yes, he did. He certainly did that. He put South Africa on an international footing. That has lasted South Africa. It's, it's a legacy of his, actually, by allowing South Africa to punch at a weight greater than it, it deserves to be. So, yeah, mixed results, ambiguous results. Absolutely. Nothing cut and dry there. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think what's interesting is if you take smuts forward towards the Second World War is that this idea of territorial aggrandizement is still there. I mean... In the Second World War, he even, you know, almost launches, you know, an invasion of, of Portuguese East Africa to take over Lorenzo Marx. You know, so these things stay persistent with him throughout history. No, absolutely. It's it's the driving force behind him. It's the essence of the man is that he was expansionist. And you raise the Second World War. Let's have a look at that very quickly. I mean, within two days of him declaring war on the 6th of September, at great political cost of this country, by the way, in the Second World War, once again, very, very divisive, joining... Uh, on the side of the United Kingdom, supporting the United Kingdom. Within two days of him having entered the war on the British side, he instructed Danae's rates to approach the British in London and demand Swaziland as compensation for entering the war. He was refused, point blank. Shows exactly what his motivation was about. He mm. saw an opportunity straight away to incorporate Swaziland, and uh, he was turned down on that. And as you say, it was a close thing. Uh, the moment we declared war on the 6th of September 1939, so we mobilized for an invasion of the southern part of Mozambique. And there, but for the grace of God, we uh, we never invaded. I mean, it was a close-run thing. That's a whole nother, other story, I suppose, another podcast. Mm. But we never mm. got to invading uh, Mozambique in 1939. But we had another go, as you know. We had another go in 1942, 1943. Uh, there, there was a veiled excuse, and we looked to, to acquire that territory again. So there's a common theme. As you say, there's a golden thread running through the whole of Jan Smuts's career, in territorial acquisition. And I really believe that is the driving force behind a lot of what he did at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. So one final question before we wrap up this podcast. Um, what would you say was uh, is Smuts's enduring influence on the South African Defence Force or the whole defence establishment in South Africa? Well, I think, look, let's have a look at the South African National Defence Force. I've looked at the doctrine. And uh, when we have a look at the doctrine, it's, it's plain to me that we strive to be maneuverists. 
There's no doubt about it. Where does it come from? Why? Why, why have the South Africans decided to be maneuvers? Well, it's not a decision that was made in 1994 with the democratic dispensation. It wasn't. We can trace our maneuvers roots right back to the South African war, the first Freiheitsoorlog. We can trace it. We can even trace it back to the Zulu wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Boerter was very, very influenced by the Zulus that he fought against to be a maneuverist. So it's got that long, long history. So although now we've codified it, we've actually got a piece, I've got documentary evidence that I can show you that it says we are South Africans and we want to be maneuverist. And this is what we want to be about. We want to have a command structure that lends itself to becoming maneuverist. It can all be traced back to uh, the formation of the Union Defense Force and its maneuverist aspirations at that stage. I think we've lost it in translation somewhere along the line. We looked elsewhere. As I said, we've looked at the Israeli army. We've looked at the German army. We've looked in various different places to try and find out where our maneuvers roots are. And I think we could do very well now to take a look at exactly where our roots come from. It comes from, as I say, our own history. That's where our maneuvers roots come from. And uh, this book tries to bring that back onto the table and serve to opening up the argument again about where our military doctrine comes from and what we aspire to be. Well, thank you for that, David. Uh, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. I um, will encourage all of the listeners to go out and pick up a copy of David's new book, General Jan Smuts and his First World War in Africa. Read it, form your opinions, and if you ever see the man in the street, that is David now, not Smuts, you can challenge him and ask him some tight uh, or tough questions. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much for hosting me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.